Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we, I mean, we work full time and this is, this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com and as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free pod course subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. 
we bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CFSLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fun and functional categories, and I am humbled to have back once again, Carrie Comer, MSCCC SLP, Clinical Supervisor, Adjunct Professor, and Outreach Coordinator at the George Washington University, and current president of the DC Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. Carrie, who is featured in episode number 75, clinical supervision as told by the SLP president of DC, has joined us today to take on those cases. Y'all, you know, the clinical practicum nightmare that we have either personally lived through as a student, as a supervisor, or witnessed a dear friend survive. Because y'all, don't those experiences feel like we're just trying to survive? To simply put one foot in front of another and trudge on till either the end of the week or the end of the term. Well, we're going to fix that. All right, Michelle, I'm seeing a trend here. Every couple months you do another episode on supervision. What's up with that? I heard several of y'all thinking that out loud. So I just went ahead and did my little skit. Yay. All right. Easy. We have hit critical mass and our dire need for quality clinical supervisors because we've hit a bottleneck. One day... If we don't pay it forward, we will not have enough clinical supervisors to meet the needs of our student clinicians. And I am venturing an educated guess that we don't want to lower the standards of supervision and in turn, the quality of our practicum experiences and therefore the future of our profession. So that's why we keep covering clinical supervision, because I'm hoping that if we bust all the myths apart and offer inspiration and functional advice, that then we'll call more colleagues up to action and have them join us as clinical supervisors. So on that very impassioned note, hello, Carrie, I'm so excited to have you back and grateful that you're here. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me back. Well, this was perfect timing because um, you and I are wrapping up March. We're wrapping up Women's History Month, and you are the lady president of the D.C. Speech Hearing Association, which I'm all about having a lady boss in charge in D.C. So, like, <laughs> yay! <laughs> and that's as far as I'm going into politics today. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. But, um, yes, so I am so grateful to have you back for um to close out our women's history month but um how have you been is there anything exciting going on in dc now (laughs) um yeah i think just the same old same old trying to avoid politics um trying to stay warm and um yeah our our dc chapter just continues to grow and grow so we're excited about a few things coming up this year nice Um, yeah that's lovely. Okay, well, fantastic. Um, and you'll have to be sure to let us know when, um, and I, I heard on the wind that there will be a um, name change coming up, maybe the end of the month. So be sure to keep us posted on that friend. <laughs> and congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's get to it because we got a lot of ground to cover and I always feel like an hour is way too short, but alas, that's about all my attention span can handle. So an hour it is. 
Thank you, ADD. Hi, Bay. Okay, so now this is, we're going to start with where I fee, feel the um, fault and the stars are on on our end on on the clinical supervisor end. So, what are some of the no nos um, or professional issues that pediatric clinical supervisors do, and the ones that we need to stop doing? I've I've heard talk of supervisors asking their students to purchase upwards of $50 worth of supplies for speech therapy and early intervention a week without reimbursing them. I've heard um, nightmare stories where um, clinical supervisors have been falling asleep in a lounge while their students complete therapy or ask them them to, and this really gets me, I mean, spending money one thing, falling asleep another thing, but asking the students to write lesson plans for speech therapy for the several weeks after the practicum ends. So like say the practicum ends on like, I don't know, um, April 15th, asking them to write them until May 15th when the next student starts. So what's the deal, lady? What do you see? (laughs) Yeah. So it's such an important question, but you know, it really is very unique to um, the supervisors and the sites out there. Of course, there's um, a lot of horror stories. I've heard them all as well. Um, including some of the examples that you mentioned. And I think what it comes down to is just having clear communication with your students and treating them like a professional. So they're not there as free labor um, and they're not coming to you as a licensed SLP with all of this knowledge. They really still need you for guidance um, and to provide feedback. But of course, you want to start to taper that off throughout the semester. So in the beginning, you might be very hands-on. And towards the end, you might give your student more independence. And you might find yourself um, doing multitasking, doing other things while the student's doing therapy. But know that they're still watching you and they want to know that you're still available, whether they need you in the session or whether they have questions for you after. Um, And also model professionalism for the students. So model the behavior that you want the students to to have as a professional. So being engaged with the client, um, even if you're not directly involved, showing up on time, using correct grammar um, when speaking with a client and in writing. And I think the other biggest issue is just communication. Make sure that all expectations are laid out. So if you want your student to provide their own materials, make sure they know ahead of time. Um, Keep in mind that some programs provide an honorarium, so maybe you can use that to purchase new materials, or maybe you can even work it out with the university so that you can borrow materials from the university for a week or a few weeks or even for a semester. That's an option? (laughs) Possibly. Of course, it's going to depend on the program and what you're interested in borrowing, but It's not uncommon for us to loan out an evaluation if a supervisor wants to try it out for a day or even a week, um, as long as we work it out with the student and we know that the student's transporting it and they're going to bring it back in the same condition, we're fine with that. Of course, each program is going to be a little bit different, but maybe that's a route that you can go as well instead of having the student purchase their own materials. Okay, so I never purchase materials, like never. Nobody ever once asked me to purchase materials because, I mean, dude, I was a broke college kid working two jobs um, in order to survive, you know? Um, In retrospect, I'm not quite sure how I did it, but like, you know, life, you just work through it week by week. But are clinical supervisors allowed to request that their students purchase materials? Or is that, I mean... 
there's no clear rule against it. Um, so you have to be reasonable with what you're requesting. If you're in a site where you just don't have a lot of materials and maybe the supervisor's also purchasing materials out of their own pocket, um, I can see how there might be some confusion and, and maybe some more need on the supervisor. But, you know, you have to remember, like you said, these are college students, they're paying tuition, they don't have a steady income at this point. And so, no, they're not really going to be able to put a lot of money into buying materials. And it's important to also show students how to use the materials that are already out there. So whether you're doing home health and you have materials in your car or you walk in without anything and you just go into the client's house and you use the materials. Yes, but early yeah. in in home health. I freaking love you, Carrie. Did you hear that world? Da, da, da. You do not need to bring toys into home health because the scope of practice, the roles and responsibilities dictates use natural environments. Bringing something in is not natural unless you bring it in and leave it for a week or two or a month so that it becomes part of their environment for carryover activities. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, sorry. Really impassioned soapbox, friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that's very important to teach students for sure. Because, um, you know, I do a lot of global work. And in the beginning, the students always want a list of what they can bring over. And the most important, one of the most important things we stress is we're not going over with anything. We're going to see what they have because that's what they're going to have when we leave. Um, and we're going to teach them how to use those materials to get more language and um, more speech and just more simulation out of that. Okay, this is a huge sidebar. But where do you do global work with? Who? Can you talk about that? Um, so, yeah, I've done a lot of volunteer work. So um, I worked with an organization um, based out of Dallas that created a program at the University of Zambia. So I was able to teach and supervise, and I went over there in person twice. Um, I've taught online. ASHA has some partner programs as well um, with PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization. So I was able to teach online with the University of Guyana. Um, and a few other ones that are escaping me at the moment, <laughs> but it's fascinating work. Um, I do love it. And I think it's very important. And of course, best practices will continue to evolve with that. And, you know, back to what I said earlier, the biggest one is sustainability and not taking materials over there, finding out what they have there service wise and material wise and teaching them how to adapt that for their needs. I love this. I love this so much. And we have to have a conversation about that in, in your third comeback. But I love that teaching students to think on their own feet with their own two hands and without resources is best practice globally and not just locally. So, wow. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to make note. We we have to talk about that one later. Okay. Squirrel. All right. So then what about you, you mentioned, um, cause I asked like 400 questions right out the gate. Cause I'm really impassioned about this, the whole falling asleep on the job business and starting with more hands-on and then tapering. Talk to us about that. Yep. So it's just really important to remember that the students are still learning. I think Sometimes supervisors have very high expectations or they're hoping a student can take over their caseload so maybe they can see other clients during that time or get more work done. We're all super busy and we have lots of uh, paperwork that we want to do before we go home. Um, but it's important to keep in mind what the student's going to need and that's going to change each week. So maybe in the beginning you start with observations and then the student does half of the session the following week and maybe the next week they jump in and do the entire session. Um, but you still need to be available for the students, even when you get to that midterm and the end of the semester when the students are very, very independent. 
and students are really good at telling you that they don't have any questions and they don't know that you need they need you. <laughs> um, when in reality, sorry, I'm there are the still. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they try to be independent and they really want to please you, but in reality, they still do need some guidance and. You know, we we all need feedback, you know, even if we've been doing this for 15, 20 years, wouldn't it be great to have a fresh, fresh perspective and, and some feedback on things that you're doing and things that you might be able to change. So definitely the students still need that. Um, so you make yourself available, but communicate with the student how you're going to do that. So if you're going to observe the, 15, the first 15 minutes of an hour session, let them know and then let them know where you'll be after that, you know, that you're available via text or email or a signal if you're watching through a window. Um, and just follow up with them when you're going to provide direct feedback. So some students and supervisors like the feedback in the moment, even if the client's there. Some prefer after the client's gone, in between that window of finishing up that session and then before your next one starts. Um, I would recommend, though, giving feedback consistently after each session or maybe every few hours in the day. I think it's best if it happens and it's still pretty fresh. Um, don't let a student talk you into <coughs> only providing feedback, you know, once a week. <laughs> no, no, that's, um, yeah, yeah, there's way too much to do in that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And you can also flip it too. So it feels like we talk all the time as a speech therapist um, and we're constantly giving cues and feedback. So ask your student, you know, towards the end of the semester, once they're more independent, are you reaching your own goals? What do you feel like you need more help with? What do you think went really well in the session? What would you change? Do you, did you address all your goals? If so, um, how did you do that? If not, what would you do differently? So change it up for yourself too. Okay. So then let's break down the professionalism component because um, I um, – my family was Navy. My husband was Army. And um, when my Irish best me, I can – it's like – have you seen Christmas Story? It's still fresh on my mind because we've been talking about all of Christmas. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you remember that infamous scene where, like, the dad does battle with the – what is it? The the, the heat uni downstairs. Um, the, and, yeah, I can't – and, and they're like, and the cloud of the colorful language that hung over Cleveland is probably still there today. That could also go from my SUV from time to time. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> I have to remember that when there's a young adult in the car to keep my professional opinions to myself, not about the student, but about, like, you know, the doctor that's refusing to make a referral when clearly pooping every five days is not normal, you know? Um, but so I know I need to work on that. But what are the common areas of professionalisms that we as clinical supervisors can shore up and better model for our students? Um, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that you are a role model for your students. So everything that you're asking your students to do, be sure that it's something that you're willing and able to do. Um, if it's something that you want to work on yourself, then maybe you can have your student be that accountability partner and, you know, ask your student, what would you do differently? Um, how do you think about the wording of this? Um, you know, what would you do in this moment? I think the other thing to keep in mind is that these are the skills that are the hardest to teach. So the students have been in class. They've had lots of clinic up to this point. They're learning the content-specific stuff for our field. But professionalism and the softer skills those are really taught in the moment and in the job. So giving students that immediate feedback, 
again, modeling what you want them to do, maybe doing some role play, but let them know that you understand that, you know, once you know better, you do better. So if there really is an issue that you're having to work on with the student, let them know that they have other chances to get it right, that it's not just one and done, that they're going to fail, um, or that this is going to haunt them for the rest of their career, that this really is a learning moment. And like I said, role play, talk about it. What can you do differently? I, I remember the first time I had a clinical supervisor ask me to role play and I was super shy and timid about it. And then she cheese balled it up. I mean, like cheese balled it. And so then I cheese balled yeah. it like to match her cheese ball. And I don't think she was prepared for the theatrical skills that I brought with her. And she was like, oh, you like really got into that. And I was like, yeah. we just modeled that. So like, yeah. So she goes, okay, so we're just going to like take it back a notch. And I was like. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> all right, cool. I'm now uncomfortable again. <laughs> like, yeah. So make sure that when you're doing the role play, you know, clarify the amount of theatrics that you want them to be involved with, because otherwise there can be confusion and everybody could be uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Uh, that That's an awkward yep. memory. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Another thing that you could do, because role play is awkward for some students, unless they have a theatrical background, um, is give them, you know, quote unquote, case studies. So maybe some scenarios that you've dealt with um, in previous semesters, you know, without using names, or even just things that you've heard of. And students actually really enjoy breaking down problems that they think are real and have happened in real life. Um, And then nobody has to have that role play um, awkward situation. Cause I can't act, you know, I can't lie. So I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to role play things either and just make sure the students understand the consequences too. So I always bring it back to the client and what's best for the client and that we're here to advocate for them. We're here to help them achieve their goals. And, you know, if there's a behavior that impacts that, then ultimately we're, we're hurting the client. Um, so one example is social media. That comes up a lot. So students will post on social media because they're so excited to learn about these clients and they want to share, or they'll post to Facebook groups asking questions and they're sharing way too much information about the client. So just reminding them what the purpose of HIPAA is and how that could directly impact the client if it were to get back to them. And I have seen where supervisors do that. And where their like former students have made commentary on the Facebook forums. So that that goes both ways or where people take videos of um, the modifieds and they don't always scrub the patient identifier from the corners. So um, also, and again, we've said it before, y'all, please be careful of what you post on the Facebook forums and the answers that you accept as best practice. And remember that ASHA has their own online professional forum for Q&A, especially if you're one of the SIG members, and they're monitored. And the people that offer advice through the ASHA Q&A, they're some of the greats in our field. So don't necessarily take trust Facebook as fact. Post the question within ASHA as well. So just I feel really, really strongly about that. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Anything else before we roll over to um, the uh, the student side of it? <laughs> uh, well, I think a lot of things um, definitely line up. So I think there'll there'll be some similar responses to the the student side as well, and you can see how 
that will all match up. Okay. All right. So then um, with our students, sometimes I see derogatory or, as you said, unpleasant social media posts. Um, I've had students make a comment in a session that was inappropriate, whether it was malicious or um, benign, whether, I mean, they may not have known it. Um, or I've had, um, I've had a couple students just flat out get into a disrespectful confrontation, um, with me in the past. Um, one of them, when I was trying to give them functional advice regarding their licensure to the point that one of my colleagues who walked behind us and was behind them was like, what is going on? This is your student. And was like mouthing the whole thing to me. And I was like, yeah, I know. Um, and that resulted in me having a conversation with their, um, with their version of you, (laughs) Um, but is this a shift? Is, is there, is this a seasonal shift? Like, I don't remember having that as frequently occurring as when I was a student. Granted, I was a student a really long time ago. Um, but are we seeing a shift in that over the years or is this just with the rise of the, um, social media. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I definitely am seeing some changes, um, you know, as students progress through the field and we're, we're reaching that next generation. Um, yeah. So we are seeing some of this come up, um, you know, kind of that individuality, um, and, uh, you know, my needs, you know, like I, um, I need extra time. I'm going to be late in doing this. And, you know, it's because of X, Y, Z instead of, all right, you know, you need to buckle down and make sure that you meet your deadlines. You know, insurance not, is not going to wait on this or, you know, the client's not going to wait on this. So seeing a little bit more of that um, and also a little bit of difficulty with kind of that abstract thinking. Um, you know, the students are liking things that are laid out, very clear cut, very black and white. Um, but having a little bit uh, more difficulty with some of that higher level thinking, problem solving in the moment. Um, so it may be generational. I can't say for sure because I haven't done a lot of research in that. But it is something that I've noticed over the last few years. Higher level thinking. I did not correlate that. You're absolutely correct. You know, um, executive function. That's a we should ask Suchetta about this because that's her area of specialty. But you are absolutely right. That just all right. Um, you guys, um, Suchetta Kamath, Suchetta, I'm saying your last name wrong. I'm so sorry, friend. Um, she has a podcast specifically on executive functioning, and she's a, she's past president of Georgia. Um, and that would be we'll we'll have to follow back up with her. I'll make a note on that one. But I, you're right. I've seen a trend in it, and. Um, I know every generation has their own little quirks. You know what I mean? That's a nice way of saying it. We all have our own quirks. But what do we do then as clinical supervisors when we see this come up? Um, so I think the first thing is follow up with the university program. So where we see things getting derailed for both the supervisor and the student is if it's gone on all semester and no one knows. So when it's time to do that final evaluation and say the student passes or actually the student really struggled and I'm not sure that they are ready to move on, that's way too late um, for the program to really put any remediation in place and to help that student get to the next level. So 
please reach out to the university with any questions or concerns that you have immediately. And it may be that, you know, we know the student really well and we can let you know that, oh, they just need a few more weeks of warming up or um, yes, we've seen that before. Let's go ahead and pull them in for a meeting. We'll have them create goals for themselves. But please, please, please reach out to university as soon as possible. And keep in mind that a lot of it can be personality or communication based. So, you know, sometimes people just don't jive and maybe there is a personality difference between the student and the supervisor. Of course, there's certainly ways to overcome that because you're going to work with all types of people in your field. So you're going to have to learn to work with people you disagree with and people that you get along with very well. Um, Communication-wise, though, make sure everything is spelled out, even small things like dress code, showing up on time, um, when to eat lunch and how long that is. Make sure everything is covered before the student starts. And, and it's helpful to have that in writing, either an email or a written contract that you have. Maybe your university has a template that they can send you just to review with your student. Because um, a lot of times when we see these clashes, it really, I would say 90% of the time, comes down to miscommunication. That the student wasn't aware that they needed to be on site, you know, all, all of these times, or they weren't aware that they were going to be in charge of this documentation starting this week. And so that's when we see some of the pushback from the students. I'm just thinking of areas of process improvement for myself. Um, I, because I mean, I, I've done this, I've had students. And one thing that I have found successful is that I asked to meet with a student beforehand. Like I, I schedule like the week before either ask the student to come in and observe for the day because it's home health. I mean, that's, that's really intense. Uh, or I ask them to meet me on like a lunch break, like coffee break. Um, Cause there's, there's some killer de- like little restaurants that I, I like to go to, like the little mom and pop shops. Uh, and that gives me an opportunity to like answer their questions in a less stressful setting because it's not the beginning of their formal practicum. It's just like a meet and greet. And since I started doing that for, I think I've done that like the last two or three years, um, which adds up because a student every semester, that really seems to help. And you are absolutely correct. And discussing those and setting those and writing beforehand. Hey, don't forget, pack a lunch. If we have time, we'll stop. Um, I have found one thing, y'all in the world of home health, if you are a clinical supervisor, we are used to not peeing, y'all. <laughs> but like, seriously, like, I know that's like a random tiny bit, but like, I've gotten that as feedback. Like, we hold it all day long because some of the houses we go to, you're not putting your butt on that toilet, right? <laughs> So like, or you need to like germex bathe um, when you leave because I've also had that happen. Um, life, but uh, I had one student who I didn't know until like halfway through the semester that she had like she was prone to kidney stones, and I was like, "You got to be freaking kidding me! You didn't tell me this." And she's like, "I really need us to stop." Um, and go to the bathroom more often. And I was like, why didn't you tell me that? She's like, because we're always rushing to get between. I was like, yes, but like I would let the families know, you know, hey, we've, we're have we making some adjustments. And like I felt like a heel because the poor kid had been battling kidney stones for like eight weeks and nobody told me. So like note to self, don't give your students kidney stones. Let's communicate that. And if, 
<laughs> so like, oh my God, I'm really not a mean person, but like, I didn't know. So yeah, have that communicated prior to, um, and make sure you carry extra spare bottles of water in your trunk. Now I know. Um, cool. <laughs> We're fine. All right. That's, that's, there's my truth, but, um, yeah. It's very true though. And yeah, just asking students up front, you know, what do you need? And I think checking in with them throughout the semester as well, because again, the students really aim to please. I know sometimes it can come across as frustrating or that the students, you know, not really that interested or motivated, but I find that the majority of the time what's behind the student's behavior and the students struggling is that they really are trying to please you and they don't want to have to ask for help because they see that as weakness. Um, so just checking in with them, you know, every few weeks, seeing what else they need. And then like what you said, meeting with them before when it's not a rush environment so they can see you outside of the therapy environment and you can interview them. Um, I believe the majority of programs, they play students with you, but you still have a say in whether you think they're going to be a good fit or not. And be honest with the student and with yourself and with the program. And if you think that there really is um, an issue with knowledge or personality or professionalism that wouldn't work in your setting, please let us know so we can help set the student up for success for that semester in the future semester. All right. So Asha, doesn't, don't they have a website or like a link on um, clinical supervision documentation support or something like that? I, I know I've gone to a couple different lectures on clinical supervision and they give you draft. They, well, I went to a really good lecture a couple years ago at shop and they gave me a draft document um, on how to do a formal critique every week. Do you guys offer that or have that as an example for your clinical supervisors? That's something that we're developing, um, and I've been wanting to do it for a while. We do use Typhon. Um, what is this? For Typhon, it's the online system. There's two main ones that programs use, Capsid. The other one is Typhon for the students to document hours. And then on there, there's an option for a midterm and a final evaluation. So that's what we use. Those are only two points in the semester that we have our supervisors monitor the students and give feedback. Um, but I think... What I want to do personally is develop something where each week, kind of like a checklist, this is where your students should be now. Um, here's how to give them more independence, but still check in on them. Um, as far as what ASHA has, I can't think of anything specifically, but they do have several pages on their website directly about supervision and frequently asked questions and materials that you can use. Okay, that's right. So there, all right. So there's folks. There's some resources, and I know that um, we use Capsid down here, and Capsid tends to also offer um, clinical supervision like webinars or tutorials. Um, mm -hmm. And oh, I think I gave you the wrong, wrong name. So it's not Capsid. Sorry, it's Calypso. Calypso. That's right. Capsid <laughs> yeah, is the um, Capsid is the academic one. Yeah. It, that's right. Yeah. Hit. We're adults. We're cool, man. <laughs> Yes, but Calypso and Calypso will periodically offer um, like webinars and tutorials. And then uh, one thing that and we, you and I covered this in um, the last episode in episode number 75, but you did mention that as of 2020, there are new requirements where you have to have two hours in clinical mm -hmm. supervision every three yep. years. Nope. Or so it's just two hours throughout your course of, cert of licensure. So it's one oh, and done. Okay. okay. Yep, and then the, I think the hour or thirty minutes in ethics, but um, those do. 
clinical supervision has changed. And so now you can be a clinical supervisor after you have finished, you finish your C's and then you, or your CF year, and then nine months later, so basically two years from graduation, you can be a clinical supervisor. That's a huge shift. And I have seen colleagues worry that some of those individuals may not have the um, skill set or training and yet under their belt to be clinical supervisors. And that's also a legitimate concern. There are some excellent clinical supervisors right out the gate. And there's some that are still finding their own clinical strengths. Um, But that's been an evolution because we have not had a sufficient amount of Um, clinical supervisors. So y'all, if you're worried about fulfilling that CEU requirement, there are, um, there are options available, but uh, just make sure that you're hitting up the website and um, staying up to date because I kind of wonder how that's going to change over the next couple of years, because we have like, we must have like a record high applicants for schools for grad school, because when, when I went to grad school, I don't think it was that hard to get in because I got in. <laughs> so like, self-deprecating humor. <laughs> but like, it is, it's changed, hasn't it? I mean. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely more competitive. There are more applicants. And I've heard it goes with the economy. So if the economy goes down, more people choose to go back to grad school. So the competition goes up. But yeah, across the board, um, programs are getting more and more applicants. And, you know, maybe they're not opening up their program to more students. So there's still the same number of slots or maybe even fewer number of slots for students. Mm. Yep. See the bottleneck. We really, really, yes. we, we, we need you people. We need, especially in the world of home health early intervention, because this is home health is hard. Y'all, this is hard. And I've seen so many people do it for their CF year and then gracefully bow out because they're like, yeah, that was, I'm cool. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. I did home health my CF year and that was it. <laughs> and you're like, and I'm out. Yeah. See, I love it because I couldn't sit still in an office all day long that would be um, purgatory for me. So like this works when I have a patient cancel, I go walk the dam. It's lovely. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, And And that's why I switched to academia because I didn't want, you know, like you said, to sit in an office hour after hour. So there's some change in scenery for sure. Yes. Yes. Uh, But see, you're still being a clinical supervisor in academia. You're paying it forward. Go team. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So is there anything else you see from the student? Oh, wait. Students, students, if you're listening, Nishla does have resources for this. So if you're part of National Nishla, which we learned about last month from Miss Natalie, um, who is a student from, um, I believe it was University of Texas. She's from the Lone Star State. Um, They do have resources if you want supports from your, I mean, I want to say classmates, but your guys are all, they may not be at the same university that you go to, but you know what I mean? There are resources available from your perspective. And please don't take this as us giving you guys a hard time. We all sin. It's just, you know, some of us sin with more gray hair in our heads. That's all. <laughs> so is there anything else from the student perspective that you want to cover? Um, That's a good question. I feel like we've covered a lot. Um. I would say what I hear the most from the students, again, is just wanting more support. And when they do feel like they're kind of left out to dry or that 
something isn't going right in their externship, it really does come down to communication. You know, everyone means very well. And when I'm first talking to students or even supervisors about issues that have come up, um, sometimes I think people take it personally and they, again, think, you know, the student isn't trying or the supervisor's mean, they're not motivated. And it really is just a communication issue. Um, and that's when we step in and, and we meet with them and usually together. It's best to meet together. Um, but that's also why it's best to be as open and honest with the student from the very beginning, because if you do get your university program involved, we have to share the information you told us. <laughs> um, that's part of giving the student feedback and helping them develop goals for themselves. So, you know, be honest with the student um, and professional as possible and, and get the university involved as much as possible. And again, just know it's not, it's usually not malicious on anyone's end. It really just comes down to communication and making sure that expectations are known up front. Mm-hmm. Therefore, have them meet you for an informal coffee. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I'll add to that. I don't have any formal data on this, but programs are starting to report back that they are having a higher number of students who are struggling more when it comes to externships and even classes. So that might be part of, you know, the abstract thinking, things that we're seeing challenges in overall. Um, but it does seem to be across the board. So, you know, sometimes students just need a little bit more time to grow and, and find their footing as a professional. And sometimes students need a stronger intervention. So I've seen a rise in um, psychological disorders, like truthful psychological disorders, that we as a country do not do enough and we're, we're better than what we were 20 years ago, but we don't do enough to say it's okay to seek counseling. It's okay to get support. Um, I've seen um, pervasive anxiety disorders, um, lumping myself in that as well. And so students from your perspective, if you suffer from anxiety, if you suffer from um, depression, uh, you may want to share that with your um, university if you don't feel comfortable sharing that with your clinical supervisor, because if that's, and and trust us, it's a two-way communication. The university will give us feedback on, hey, um, you know, this student's coming, they're a stellar student, but, you know, just please be aware that this is one, one facet of this individual. It's not who the individual is, but it's one facet of that. Um, and then, also, please know that on our side, like I make jokes about it all the time. I do have ADD and ADHD. I'll get really excited about a clinical case study when I am um, riding shotgun with my intern in the car or the student observer in the car, but then it'll connect to a different spaghetti noodle. And then I'm 14 steps over here because that's just how my brain works. I do rely on the student to say, oh, okay, well, can you finish off this thought and then go over there? Because I'm used to living in my own head. Michelle Lynn's very convoluted, but it makes sense. So, but I'm not the only clinical supervisor that struggles with that. And I'm not the only clinical supervisor out there that has PTSD from domestic abuse situations. And I am honest and open about that, but there are other supervisors that when they go into a certain living situation, their demeanor may change because they feel uncomfortable because they've had a trigger come up. Um, the students could be survivors, but y'all, this is the kind of communication that if, 
if we know about it, we can all work as a team to address it. So I just, um, communication about daily expectations, but also communication about addressing the whole person. Um, I feel like we're not doing enough for our students in that perspective. And I also, I don't know why we're having such a rise in it. Um, and then one thing that really bothers me is I've heard so many clinical supervisors, y'all were guilty of this. Well, how come the university isn't teaching them that? Y'all, the university cannot possibly teach these students everything that first and second semester of grad school, and they don't have our experience corner of the evidence-based triangle. That's why they come for student practicums, so that we can give them that. So that's something that we have to remember, because I feel like the older the clinical supervisors, the older we get, the more we expect the students to learn, because our skill set has, has grown. But I mean, the students still don't know what they don't know, because they're still students. Is that, is that, does that sum that up? That, that was a lot. Yeah. No, that was beautifully worded. Thank you. Yes. Keep in mind that they are still students. We all have to start somewhere. We were all in that same boat, scared out of our minds, not sure what we were going to do. You know, the first time a client coughed, if we were working on dysphagia, um, or the Get first time, <laughs> yeah, right. or, the first... <laughs> or even students are so scared of babies crying. <laughs> <laughs> that's like their number one fear and it's like okay a kid's gonna cry but they're gonna get over it um, I remember one time having a student not the student cry the baby cried and I was breastfeeding one of our I don't remember which kid it was and my milk came in and I leaked through all my pads everything I mean I'm dribbling out both boobs but I'm still focused on the kids so I'm not paying attention to what's going on and my student was petrified to tell me I'd sprung a leak and I looked down and I was like well that's a wrap for therapy today <laughs> uh, students please tell us when that happens the lactating mothers in the room will be grateful <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's important for students to know like what real life is like and to see you in different elements and just to see you being human you know because again they look at us like we're some kind of superhero and and we have it all together and we have all the answers and we're always on time and we're prompt and um and that's just not how it is like you said we all have things that we struggle with for different reasons and also I loved what you said um, earlier too that, and to note that we are seeing a higher rise in mental health disorders because we're certainly seeing that um, across the country in our programs, um, specifically with depression and anxiety. We're seeing a lot more of that. And, you know, to be honest, sometimes students think that they've shared that with us and they haven't. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, sometimes they have reasons for hiding it. Again, it usually comes back to, I really want to please these people. I don't want to come across as needing help. And so then they just get over their heads and, you know, each week it just uh, piles on. Um, the other thing that's actually happened more and more, at least in our program, is the students don't tell anyone on campus and then they get to their externship and they disclose something and they're really struggling. And the supervisor is like, you know, the student shared this with me. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to, but it's so important. And that sometimes is the first time we're hearing about a student's health issue or mental health issue. Um, and of course, we're going to put whatever support we need to in place for that student. It's just always best to know as early as possible so we can put those in place. Yeah. We've had a couple students just recently whose um, parents have passed away. And, um, one of them I know didn't, um, share with the university that, um, 
their loved one was as sick as they were until right at the very end. But everybody could tell something was off, you know. And I mean, y'all, we're in the business of healing and communicating. I mean, that's like a huge chunk of our job descriptions. So um, with that comes empathy and compassion, or I should hope so. So um, we're here. It takes a village. We're your village. So It does. Yeah. Yes. And also, you know, goal writing. So a lot of students, once they've shared that they're struggling, it's a weight off their shoulders. And I would say 90% of the time, they say, I'm so grateful to have this accountability. So, you know, teaching students firsthand how to have goals for themselves and deadlines and helping them work towards that. They, they really do like that, again, once they've disclosed something and, and that burden is lifted. Okay. So because, because all the soapboxes and squirrels and impassioned, please reach out to us, <laughs> conversations have happened. We have, um, we have 14 minutes to cover the last question. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> no pressure. Um, all right. So what about when it's just not working out? What about when um, the student feels bullied, threatened, or gaslighted? And I've seen that happen. What about when the clinical supervisor is at their wit's end because no matter how the communication verbal is happening, they just don't feel like it's working. So how do we salvage this in such a way that it's a positive learning experience for all parties involved? Great question. Um, so, of course, there are scenarios like that, and I would think those are the most extreme um, and, fortunately, the most rare of issues that we do have come up. First things first, document. Make sure that everything is documented, just like you do with your clients. Cover your butt um, because it's not helpful when a student or supervisor comes to us and it's just all a verbal recount. Um, of course, you know, we can get to the details, and, and we certainly – um, understand personalities and, um, you know, can try to get to the bottom of it, but it has got to be documented for everyone's sake. Um, so document all the meetings with students, the students' responses, um, how many times you had those meetings, if you see any changes in the students, and just continue to let the university know. And I think it's important to work together with the supervisor, the university, and the student to decide on um, the best plan of action. So sometimes it's so hectic for both parties, it's easier just to cut the cord and say, we're going to place the student somewhere else, or, you know, the student's not going to be able to finish out the semester. They're going to try again in the following semester for a new site. Um, or sometimes we say, let's put these goals in place. I'm going to check in with you and the student every week and see if those goals are being met. If they're not being met, then we're going to go to, to plan B. Um, which would just be more intervention. So there's not a clear-cut response to all. It's just, again, important to document, 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 and communicate all of your concerns, and then work together with the program and the student to figure out what's best. Okay, so this is a question that um, I don't even know how to professionally word it, so <laughs> bear with me. Um, what about if the student has a learning disability mm -hmm. and on the rule. And, and I have yet to have that personal experience. Um, but I know that I've had uh, colleagues who were concerned that their current student had um, say dyslexia or a reading disability. 
and they didn't know how to go about bringing it up because they were concerned that like the chart review wasn't happening in the the way that it should, um, the timeliness with which it should happen, those those kind of factors. Like you see what I'm saying? Are we in the role of a clinical supervisor, if we see those concerns, do we go to you at the university? I mean, I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to ask the student because I feel like that would offend the student. But um, help. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big question. Um, yes, always go to the university first. And Again, they can share more information about the student up to a point. Of course, there's only so much that we can share. But just knowing the student and the personalities and how they learn best, how they respond best to feedback, we can certainly share that with you. Um, Sometimes there are students who may have something that's undiagnosed. Um, So, of course, they, they certainly can choose to disclose or not disclose. But sometimes we do have students where we think there's something else going on um, and maybe it hasn't been diagnosed. And all we can do as a program, you know, is just document, 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 give the student feedback. But it's also important to show that you've put supports in place um, as part of that documentation so we can make the call whether, you know, there's something else going on. The student needs a lot more support and maybe this isn't the field for them or maybe it's just they can't handle the fast pace of a certain setting. So maybe we can... uh, gear that student towards a different type of setting that they can excel in as well. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Cause I've just, I've just wondered that, like, how do we go about if we have concerns that there's a learning disability or it, and, and I say that from a place of love, from a place of deep concern, like we, we want y'all, y'all, if you're a student listening, we want y'all to be successful, but um, I mean, if you learn best auditorily, but your clinical supervisor learns best visually, then we got to build a bridge because otherwise it's going to be a bad term. <laughs> so like communication. Uh, also, that's kind of ironic because some of us really suck at communicating to like colleagues when we are SLPs. And I'm like, how does that even happen? <laughs> <laughs> have you noticed that like we should all go back and take a counseling class sometimes yeah <laughs> uh, right. but I think we're seeing more of that too in programs you know students coming to programs who um you know have a stutter or do have dyslexia or even something more you know such as high functioning autism um we're seeing that and they're drawn to the field because of the services they received and the impact that those had on them. So they do truly want to give back. Um, but we as universities, you know, we put supports in place for students, but it's it's going to have to be, you know, functional and realistic. It's going to have to be supports the students can have post-graduation in a job. Um, otherwise, we're not setting the student up for success. That's... I've, I've wondered how that worked, like what that looked like to help them be successful on the other side once they have finished school, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that answers, that answers that unspoken question. Nice. Let it. Okay. So what else do we, we, we have, I feel like there's going to be questions. So I want to make sure that we allocate a couple minutes at the end. What else can we do to salvage? What, um, what else should we do? Is there any, have we hit it all? Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing is just 
you know, documenting everything and following up with your program. Don't feel like you have to do this on your own. Um, when I, when it gets to the point where I intervene um, in our program, the supervisor always tells to, says to me, you know, oh, I, I hope I'm doing the right thing. I, I really wanted to give the student the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, I didn't want to sabotage anything for the student. And, you know, you don't have to do this alone as a supervisor. Sometimes it does take a village and we're all here for you, um, you know, with whatever you need. And it takes, you know, several minds to come together sometimes to problem solve, to see what the real issue really is going on and to see what the next step would be. So don't try to handle this on your own. That's not what we're asking you to do. Um, as a university program, when you, when we ask you to supervise, we're, we're not asking you to, you know, carry this burden just yourself. Um, we really are here for you. Okay. So then my, my, my last thought on this is y'all, we do have burnout. Like, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it is exhausting to have a lot of like multiple years of students. Um, because I mean, I do enjoy a couple of days of quiet in my car where it's just me listening to, um, I'm really into 99% Invisible. It's a podcast on the history of design, the most random design things like the design of um, trailer parks, the design of um, storefront windows, but it's wonderful. So if anybody's out there, check out 99% Invisible with Roman Maz. But what I have found is that if I communicate my concern for burnout, sometimes simply having that break between semesters helps. Sometimes changing it up. Instead of taking a graduate student, try an undergraduate student. Instead of taking an undergrad, flip it and take a graduate student. Um, if you feel that your clinical caseload is too advanced for maybe a first semester student, it could be that simple of a problem. Maybe you need to take a student after they've had their dysphagia class or maybe after they've had their, their um, disfluency class. So communicate that back to the university. Or if you need a semester off because you've got a lot of vacation plans. Um, I know that for me personally, when I have a semester that I'm lecturing heavily, like out of state, I stress out about having the student because it's on my heart that I also have to help them get their hours, but I'll be gone like every Friday um, for like, you know, three or four weeks. Communicate that. Maybe instead of having a student five days a week, ask to have a student two days a week. We need you as a clinical supervisor, but we need you to still be able to give it your full attention when you're a clinical supervisor. Does that, am I, does that make sense? I, I think that came out all right. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. And there's all sorts of ways to change it up. Like you said, we can play students full-time, part-time. You can share students between supervisors. Um, so maybe you have them one day a week or even every other week. Um, or yeah, take a semester off. You know, you're not obligated to take a student. We want you to take as many students as often as you can, but you're not obligated to, and we completely understand if you need, you know, a semester off for your own caseload, um, just to get yourself, um, you know, refreshed or to learn new techniques. You know, sometimes people say, well, I really want to become trained in this and I'm going to do these CEUs this semester. So I'm going to wait to take a student so then I can teach them what I learned. So yes, take care of yourself. 
Also, personal experience. Maybe don't take a student the semester that you're due because every time <laughs> I did, I got put on bed rest and they were like, oh, snap. <laughs> the two-step stuff will shuffle for the intern. So yeah. like if you're planning to expand your family, just, you know, from personal experience, bed rest can happen. <laughs> okay. On that lovely note, thank you, Goose and Bear. Um, all right. So Carrie. If folks wanted to reach out to you about additional questions regarding clinical supervision, how can they best reach you? Email. So you can email okay. me at comerk at gwu.edu. Can you say that one more time? Uh-huh. Comerk, C-O-N as in mom, E-R-K at gwu.edu. Perfect. Also, Real quick, we do have to switch gears because I heard that the DC Speech, Language, and Hearing Association has like one of the neatest annual conferences around. So when is it? Where is it? And what inside scoop do y'all have going on, lady? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. So it's going to be Friday, May 1st at ASHA's National Office in Rockville. So it's a really cool building. Um, if you guys are in the area or up for traveling, please come see us. It's just that one day, Friday, May 1st. Um, there's plenty of hotels nearby. We have public transportation, so come on out. And we are still accepting proposals as of right now, but our goal is to offer topics that are now required by ASHA and also uh, DC licensure, so ethics, LGBTQ, and supervision. And we're also, we also have a goal of having student-specific tracks. So if you are a student, we're going to try to have um, topics on mentoring and uh, professionalism, CFs, and, that, and planning for beyond that. So come on out. And you can check us out at disha, dcsha.org. Oh, that is, I still think it's so cool that your annual conference is at the ASHA building. Like, I mean, yeah. that is that is not an option for those of us down here in the Palmetto State. So like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So, yes. And yeah. it's Friday, May 1st? Yes. Friday, May 1st. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So there, y'all heard it there. Friday, May 1st. Join, is it, you say it, Disha? Mm-hmm. Okay. Disha. Um, join Disha at their annual conference at the ASHA office, and you can sign up at disha.org, right? Yes. Perfect. Beautiful. Okay. All right. Hold on real quick. Um, I do need to switch to the, um, the question, but I just wanted to tell you, thank you. Thank you for being a, um, a woman leader. Thank you for um, inspiring the trajectory of our field and inspiring students. And thank you for wrapping out Women's History Month with me. This is absolutely the perfect way to close it out. So I appreciate you. So thank, thank you. you. It's been an honor. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Let me, let me switch over. Hold on one second. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. 
The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Mm -hmm.